Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, on this your day, here in this place called your church, where we've sung your word and we'll study it here in moments, Lord, we thank you for the truth, for the record of scripture, for your revealing yourself, for leaving heaven to become flesh and to take on our punishment to forgive our sins. Lord, we could not think of grander themes from the Scriptures. The Old Testament foretells it. The epistles explain it. But it's your cross where we became yours again. Lord, I ask that you open to us today things from Scripture that will change our thinking, change our behavior, or change our beliefs perhaps, but take full jurisdiction over our hearts, our heads, our mouths. Lord, may we encourage one another, having seen folks today that we haven't seen in so long. And Lord, bless those watching by live stream. We thank you for the the technological advances to meet in that way. Lord, this is good to be in your house. May we make full use of it. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you on uh, this beautiful Sunday morning. Next week is Palm Sunday, and the week after that is Easter Sunday, and we still... Uh, plan until the weather tells us different uh, to meet outdoors, and that will be behind the Family Life Center. Um, I think we should call that the backyard. We're going to meet in the backyard this Easter Sunday, and uh, we do need the right weather. We need enough warmth, and otherwise, I think it'll all work out just fine. There's some details and some volunteers that will be moving chairs around and so forth. But that is our plan, and we hope uh, to be able to carry that out, Lord willing. We've been in John's Gospel for a very long time now, and we're nearing the end. This is John chapter 19, and we'll pick up in verse um, 28 today. We'll have a little bit of a passage left over for next week that has to do with Christ's burial. And we'll look at that and make a, a, a few uh, notes and try to understand the significance of John's record of his burial. But today has to do with the last little portion of Christ's life before his death and resurrection. And then we look at what takes place after his death, but before his burial, he, while he remains on the cross. And the best way to begin is to read through this passage. Uh, so let me do that. This is John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, 
he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says, They will look on him who they have pierced. This is God's word. And let's us pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of scripture recorded by John, the beloved. Lord, we need your help today. Not just to push away the fact that we think we may know this or that about this passage being as familiar as it is. But Lord, that you would give us what we don't have in and of ourselves. The ability to understand your word. Lord, open it to us. May we be obedient to it. Lord, may you, be, may you do the very thing you promised to do. And that your word would not return void but produce what it was sent forth to do, to make believers. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, another day in church, our Bibles open, together at your feet. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. I thought it would be helpful to remind ourselves of where we began in this book um, over a year ago, and that was at the end of this book. The end of this, of the next chapter actually, chapter 20 and verse 30. John gives us the reason for writing in the first place. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. So it shouldn't surprise us that at different turns... He reminds us of his purpose, and he's done such right here in the passage for today. He doubles down on his eyewitness account credentials as an apostle. Says that it's true, that it was true, that it is true. He's writing this much later, but he says the purpose is to record it so that you can believe what he has believed. Now, some of this today and some of this next week and some on Easter Sunday um, will be kind of like standing on the shore looking at the ocean. Not at Myrtle Beach when it's full of people. But when you're alone and you can kind of take in and with your eyes look on something so much bigger than yourself. You have some understanding of it. You may have taken a swim. Maybe you fish. But you never think for a moment that you could control. Or even let down your guard. 
and forget about the respect that that ocean commands. Most of it is a mystery to us. But God has so chosen to give us a few details to help us understand and to grasp enough to be born again. The rest of which we'll understand when we see Him face to face. So when we read in verse 28 the two words after this, that's just John's way of time stamping what had taken place. There's a short interval between what we read now and what took place with Christ's last work, really, in making sure his mother was taken care of and gives her into the care of John. We stopped there two weeks ago. And... John is just telling us this story as it happened, so we read here what happened after that. And knowing all things that were now finished, knowing that all things were now finished, Jesus said, and John gives us in parentheses, that's the way it's formatted here in the ESV, to fulfill Scripture. He's actively fulfilling Scripture in the words that he says right here at the end. And that passage of Scripture could be a number of places, likely the description of the tongue sticking to the roof of the mouth from the account of Psalm 22 that we mentioned. But he says he thirsts. So there's sour wine, there's a sponge, there's a hyssop branch. When Jesus had received this, he said it is finished. Then John tells us a little more specifically perhaps more tenderly than the others, that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it says that Jesus, at this point, knew all that was now finished. And again, just add to the growing list that John makes sure that we understand that Jesus is in full control of every last step. Uh, That he knew that all was done at this point. Uh, It seems clear that we are not meant to think that every last thing necessary to the work of redemption had taken place. He was not yet dead, but his death was at that point imminent. His body is almost spent. As far as what his father had asked, commanded for him to do, that was, was all but done, is what this means. It was rather inevitable. So Jesus said, as John is careful to tell us, to fulfill Scripture, that I thirst. Now the other uh, Bible gospel writers say as much. But John gives us a few more details. Uh, The reference to sour wine here uh, is just a way to reference wine that had passed its prime Uh, There's a certain point where wine is at its best and it just kind of goes downhill from there. And to understand the function of wine in that culture and how it was a preserved drink and how they could preserve the grape harvest and so forth. Once you crush those grapes and extract the juice, in that case it was likely natural yeast that would convert those sugars into CO2 and alcohol. It's basic science experiment, really. But in that process, a lot of uh, esters are released, which put together a profile of the way that it tastes. Well, there's a lot of other bugs floating around in there at the same time. And later in the process, these 
bacteria have a chance to eat that alcohol like the yeast ate the sugar. And they leave behind these things called acids, which sour the wine and turn it into vinegar. Both of them have a use. Both of them are good for one thing or another. But in this case, we know exactly what it is. It's a sour wine. And most historians say that that was what was given to the soldiers because that didn't interfere with their work like the good wine would have. So it's cheap. It's abundant. It's used here for the soldiers. And perhaps if they see fit to give some to those that were being executed. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus had refused a drugged wine. This can be confusing because, wait a minute, he refused that. Now, that was different wine mingled with gall, which was an, an anesthetic. It was drugged. And from that, we understand that Jesus was to undergo this with a clear mind, drinking every bit of the cup that the Father had given to him. So he refused that wine before the crucifixion. This is near the end of the crucifixion. And so now, this makes sense looking at the other accounts, that wishing to say something that will be heard, Jesus calls for a drink. And we can only make the assumption that this was to loose his parched throat in order to project his voice. To say these words that we've heard so many times all our lives. It is finished. Which is a very dramatic and beautiful description of his humanity, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've stood behind many of these. Most of them will have a glass down here somewhere. Because if you do a, a, a bit of speaking, you can dry out. And with a dry mouth, you can't speak. This is in the... Palestinian son, beaten half to death and then hung on a cross. But it shows us that this tabernacle that he talked of being destroyed is just about finished. So you see his humanity on display. The other gospels tell us that Jesus cried with a loud voice. And at that he dies. So you could say our Savior died with the cry of victory on his lips. It wasn't some uh, moan of defeat or a sigh of resignation. He spoke and he spoke loudly and what he said, he said clearly. The words, it is finished, is really one word in the Greek. And it means complete or even better, accomplished. It's already been mentioned today. Uh, the reason why we want to make that clear is because the English translation finished is kind of, uh, well, it's, it's not as wide. And the way we use that word, um, we think of something at the end. You know, we, you finished your trip. We might say we were finished uh, after some lick and a promise at some shift or our homework or eating our vegetables or whatever else we were given to do by our parents. Yeah, I'm finished. When that doesn't mean at all that the task is finished. This has to do with every bit of what the Father gave him to do. Basically, he is saying it has all been completely and totally, meticulously accomplished. The total package here. 
you would never think that a man who would spend years of his life as an author putting together a novel of sorts to say at the end, well, I'm finished. No, he's accomplished something. There's more to it than that. So it is finished actually represents a righteous life has been lived. That hasn't happened ever. Adam did not accomplish the purpose for which he was created. He sinned against God and every last man and woman has done the same thing. This is truly unprecedented. As we talked a few weeks ago. There's no such thing on this planet as, as this that we're reading. Jesus had obediently and meticulously carried to completion all the work that his father had given him to do in fulfillment of scripture for those he would call to himself. Exact obedience to every righteous requirement of the father had been maintained. The significance of his whole life comes down to this moment. Not that it hangs on it, but that it is comprised of the Three words in English that cap it at the end. His life was not finished as if this is the end, but his purpose for coming to earth was now complete. So the full measure of God's wrath had been poured out. The cup of that wrath had been drunk to the bottom. In full accordance with the law of God, the penalty for sin had been paid. The substitute had been taken, the place of his people. Atonement had been made for every last one of their innumerable sins. The curse that was given by the voice of God in the Garden of Eden had been broken. The heel of the seed of the woman had been bruised, and the promise of a crushing blow to the head of the serpent had been delivered. It is finished, is what that means. We could spend all day, all month, all year, all the generations, based off what John would say. If all the things about this man were written, I don't suppose the world could contain the books to pack into what was summarized by it is finished. John goes on to say that at this, he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. There was nothing left to do at that point. And this is not at all the usual way of referring to death that someone writing in Greek would refer to death with. This is not how they would say it. I wouldn't go as far as to say this is a euphemistic way of skirting the idea of saying that someone is dead. But it's not at all the usual way to say it. That he would give up his spirit. Matthew 27 says Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark 15 says and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Again this is the ESV. Luke 23. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this he breathed his last. So although it might be taking it a bit too far to say that he dismissed his own spirit, he clearly said that no one would take his life from him, that he would willingly, actively lay it down, 
then followed that he had authority to lay it down, to let it go, as it were, to give up his own spirit. And he had authority to take it up again. So in one sense, they had destroyed the temple of his body. And in three days, that would be reversed. But Jesus did not expire. He was the actor in his death. Does that make sense? Not an actor like on a screen, but an actor. he's, He's the acting agent. And he will also be the acting agent in his resurrection. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the Jews... And this is the last thing that we see them do. It's according to John's record. Not content to leave things alone. And they've been busy all the while. One more thing. They go to Pilate. Now this whole paragraph from here on to the end of what we read this morning is unique to John's account. This is what John gives us that the others don't. It tells us that Jesus' death by crucifixion came fairly quickly. In comparison, at least with the other two that were there. And then what we know in in history, extra biblical, of how long someone might linger on a cross. I think the longest one we have in historical record was eight days. This is rather quickly. Which might have a lot to do with the fact that he had been beaten twice. If we understand correctly from what John tells us. And either one of those... For nothing small one sometimes ended in death itself. What happens here, it seems to be John's point in recounting these details from this verse 31 forward, is to put forward the prophetic significance of at least two things. And this is what we'll focus on. Though this might not be the two things that are focused on most often at Easter. It's interesting to find out how many sermons, if you look through the published works and websites and everything else, you'll find messages on the cross 10 to 1 to the resurrection. The resurrection is really what makes it all so fantastic. Lots of people have died. None of them rose from the dead like this. So these details sometimes can get left for the more spectacular, those that make for better headlines or titles. But one, his bones were not broken, and two, his side was pierced. What's the significance of that? Well, we'll find out as we move in. The preparation here that's discussed in verse 31 had become a technical term for the Sabbath's preparation. You would prepare for the Sabbath. There's certain things you do to get ready for the Sabbath. If you've been to Israel, you know things change. Nothing's open on the Sabbath. So yeah, there's some things to do to prepare for the day that is set aside as a day of rest. So that's what's happening here. The day of preparation to us just means Friday. The Sabbath is Saturday. And according to Jewish law... The dead body of an executed criminal was to be buried before sunset. So the Jews are thinking, well, especially on a Sabbath, this needs to be done. Um, That's according to their Jewish law. You might say, well, do you have a verse for that? I do. 
Deuteronomy 21, 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him that same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the Jews seem to be more worried about this than they are about having killed the man for whom the Passover was purposed in the first place. Now the Roman custom, we just learned about the Jewish custom, the Roman custom was to squeeze every last bit of horror out of this means of execution known as crucifixion for its deterrent to capital crime. And they would leave the bodies of the crucified to rot on their crosses as the birds would pick their bodies. They left them there on purpose. So the Jews have asked Pilate to speed up the process by breaking their legs so that hopefully they could take the bodies away before the Sabbath and avoid that spectacle. This betrays their real concern, which was that the highway be clear of naked corpses on this, the most important day of their calendar. The streets are filled with people, a million strong. We've got to get that cleaned up. It isn't said that Pilate gave his approval, but evidently he did, because it wouldn't have happened unless he had. Perhaps he was fearing more complications. He'd been thoroughly blackmailed and ruthlessly had. So he doesn't want any more trouble. In verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who'd been crucified with him. And I'm sure that most of you understand the way crucifixion worked. Most died of asphyxiation. It's hard to breathe with your arms above your head. They'd put a place where you could push off to take the, the, the strain off one's arms and to take in a breath. And it was a horrible, awful way to die. The quickest way to bring that to an end was to break their legs so they couldn't push up anymore. And if that wasn't brutal enough of a sight for those that were there, it wouldn't be long afterward. And it says that the two who were still alive, their legs were broken. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So by the time the soldiers got to Jesus, maybe they started on either side, and when they got to the middle, they find out he's gone. They have been ordered to intervene, but the purpose for that intervention has already transpired, at least for Jesus. So there's no point in breaking his legs. So we're kind of guessing at this point which this is. To confirm that Jesus is dead or just out of senseless brutality. But one of these soldiers runs a spear up through Christ's side. And uh, the significance of this, especially the mention of blood and water, is not altogether clear. And some may just look at this reading what sounds like a play-by-play would say... well. I, 
what's what's there to talk about. But the commentators have found generations worth of things to talk about. What can that mean symbolically? What does the water and the blood mean? Does this have to do with what was being told to Nicodemus? Could this be baptism and the Lord's Supper? I'm sure that it has a lot of meaning, especially the people whose life revolved around the sacrificial system. But without any clear associations from John, who's telling the story as to what these things mean, I think the safest thing is just to say that he's explaining how it happened and leave the conjecture and speculation to others. Though I'm sure that it's replete of such things. As far as our concern this morning, the description need not mean any more than that a bloody, watery substance came out of a spear wound, which to those present confirmed that Jesus was dead. I think that's the point John means to make most clearly. He was gone. They didn't break his legs, and they verified that fact by use of the spear. So in either case, it made a profound impression on John as he presses emphatically that he has good evidence for what he's saying. And with what he says in verse 35 and 6 and 7, um, he actually does not mention a second time either the blood or the water. Which is interesting. Let's look at it. Verse 35. He's going to repeat what he had just said for the purpose of anchoring his eyewitness testimony. He who saw it, what? What he just described, has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, so you got his testimony, and then you've got the testimony of prophetic scripture. Two testimonies. A twofold testimony. And what does he say there? That the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it's the unbroken bones and the pierced side that John is using to support his argument. So two things stand out plainly at least at the summary stage of his account of what happened during the death of Jesus. One, these details can be relied upon. Don't you think that's his point? I mean, look at it. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. He knows what he's telling the truth so that you may believe. He credits his own witness as airtight. Second of all, he maintains that they are recorded for the purpose of your belief. Now, he doesn't go on here and say that, or explicitly explains how he expects this information to result in your faith and belief. But it's clear that he expects it to do the trick. He expects that anyone who would believe what he saw would believe what he believed. So he's going to the trouble to write it all down meticulously such that you've got enough to satisfy your mind of its truthworthiness. Prophetically speaking, let's cover that too. What is the significance of no broken bones and a pierced side? 
Well, we've got some options here, though some seem to be a better case than others. The first, the no broken bones, would come from Exodus 12 or Numbers 9, where it speaks of how the bones of the Passover lamb in its preparation and even as they would eat the Passover lamb, none of its bones were ever to be broken. Of course, it was to be set aside for a number of days to make sure it had no blemish or imperfection. Both of these cases say the same thing. And as John has already introduced Jesus um, in the beginning as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, it makes sense that this would likely be what he's alluding to. Though there were other places in Scripture where it talks of God taking care of his own such that no bones are broken, that might fit as well. But as to scripture and verse, John doesn't tell us. They knew these prophecies so well they didn't need to footnote them. Second of all, this idea of looking on him whom they've pierced comes from Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David. This is, this is uh, Jewish folks, Hebrews, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem... A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and whip bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, you, you want to look at that and say, uh, no, actually, uh, that day they all made fun of him. There were a few that were weeping but not as though they were involved or responsible or blamed for it. No, this is what's nice about John being able to write later. Hey, some of this is still yet to come. Where every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and the nations understand exactly whom was crucified. So part of this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. So you've got his eyewitness account and the account of pre-written history known as prophecy. And at this point, I think we can begin to ask questions. We know that this is the Easter story. It's the record, according to John, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and covers his death. But the way John wrote it, how he wrote it, and what he included, what does that mean? What is he trying to tell us? Why has John given us information that others have not? What is the purpose of this unique information to his account? Those would be good questions to answer today. So, in my arrangement of this, try to make sense of it all and to keep it ordered. Uh, These are really just questions and then answers, and we think through it, and then land on John's last word. Not necessarily a, a, a bunch of points here to give you a chart of how to go behave. These are not applications as much as they are implications. Do you, do you know the difference between an application and an implication? And we talked about that. I used my wife's notes to me. There's really no application for that, there's a grand implication. She loves me because she wants to, not because I told her she had to. What good would it be to have to tell somebody how how, how to feel about you? The magic is when they do that on their own and know who you are, right? 
Jesus knows us. He's done this anyway. It's, it's, it, it's been planned from the foundation of the world. These are the most grand implications the scripture has to offer. Not necessarily an application, but I think by that you know what I mean. So what does it mean? First of all, it means we have a credible eyewitness account upon which to base our belief. On which we can hang our eternal hope. There's a lot of specifics here, but they add up to a very general argument that John is making. The general argument speaks to the truth that what we believe as Christians is based on historical fact. Actual historical happenings. In this case, a jar full of sour wine, a sponge on a reed, a cry that it is finished, legs that were broken, legs that were not broken, a spear, a wound, blood, water, and ancient scriptures that seem to make sense now. Those are details that actually happened. And if they didn't happen, we are almost miserable. We would be the most foolish naive and pitiful people on the planet to put on our nice clothes, fire up the live stream. Maybe not the nice clothes when you fire up the live stream, but at least when you come in here so everybody else can see you. They may be able to see us. I know they can see me. Why would we do all this if we didn't believe that this stuff was absolutely true? And why would anybody change their life if they didn't believe it was true? So we do believe it was true. It means John believed it because he saw it and recorded it so you could believe it too. So I guess we could just throw around some ideas about what's the difference between things that might make a difference in our lives. But we really don't worry whether or not it's actually true or not. Because there's some things that have an impact on our lives. But whether or not they're true or not doesn't really make a difference. There's a lot of fairy tales that are good for a grand amount of entertainment. They can still be entertaining, although they're not absolutely true. Some of them aren't even remotely true. What about Christmas? You know, there's different ways to look at that. December 25th, that is. We've got our way. We know... The reason for the season, right? It has to do with the baby that was born in Bethlehem's manger. And they were in Bethlehem because a real Caesar issued a real census that made everybody really move all over the place to make sure it happened just the way it was prophesied to take place. But as far as Santa Claus goes and uh, retail's biggest scheme... <laughs> To separate you from your money in order to give people stuff on Christmas that you don't even like. Does Santa Claus need to exist for the world to get all nostalgic and want to hear those same songs on the radio every year and buy all that mess to put on your house and then put it back in the attic sometime in March? <laughs> That's a big thing, isn't it? But most people don't even give a second thought as to whether or not Santa Claus is real makes a difference at all. Now, you might find a parent who will get in your face if you try to tell their kid that he does or doesn't exist. 
because you're messing with their nostalgia, right? But basically, it doesn't matter. We talk about other things. I read that one in ten Americans does not believe that we landed on the moon in the 60s. I also read that Buzz Aldrin, one of the fellows that was part of that whole thing, was accosted by a man in his late 30s outside of a hotel. The man had a Bible and he wanted him to swear on it. Now Buzz Aldrin is in his early 70s at that point and tried to just walk away from this man. But after the man followed him and called him a coward and a liar, Buzz Aldrin actually hit him in the face. And at that point, I'm thinking that that younger fellow might have made a note to self. If you're going to pick on a comparatively old man, make sure he's not one that's actually walked on the moon. (laughs) You might upset him if you say he hasn't. Would it matter if we found out years down the road that it really was a grand hoax? You know, there are some that are already priming the pump by saying there's nothing wrong with a country who sees itself as the best and would use whatever it had at its disposal to make Russia think that they were better than they really are. It's basically just a philosophical way to justify lying in order to make yourself out to be something you're not. Wouldn't that be the same goofy stuff that we tell our children sometimes? You know, you can be anything you want to be, which is garbage. And the younger you are, the more crazy things you might say you want to be when you grow up, like a fish (laughs) that can swim under the water or fly or something. You'd need a machine for that. And if it breaks, you will die earlier. But we want to tell kids that they can do anything, right? So what would be the difference in a country that thinks the same way and might justify it by lies? I'm just saying that's the way some people look at this and are able to say, well, if we did or if we didn't, it doesn't really make a difference to me. Right? Again, there's some things that just don't matter. I've never met someone who would go into a darkened room and refuse to turn on the light switch because they didn't fully understand what was going on. So they're just not going to use it. I don't understand that electrons move up and down a conductor. And uh, through resistance uh, produce heat in those filaments that gives off light as a byproduct. Or the fluorescent ones by exciting fluorescent gas. You know that's how that works. YouTube can explain it for you. But most people don't care. They just flip on the light switch and they do their job. Right? Here's where we need to be careful, because I believe that we're in a spot in modern America where the majority of churches plop down in pews and listen to preaching as if it's kind of like that, where a guy could open up to John and start teaching the story of where Jesus fed a multitude with loaves and fishes. And then proceed to tell you that if you can be just as generous and trusting to Jesus with the little bit that's been put in your hands, 
The sky's the limit. Now that's not a falsehood, but that is not at all why John went to the trouble to record that. He recorded that to tell you that Jesus actually multiplied fish and loaves and fed 5,000 men and their families. Nobody else could do that. And it was so grand that a mob of people followed him to say, do it again. And then after they said that, you know what he said to them? You know, you're messed up. You just want food. I'm here to tell you that unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no hope of standing in, in, in the presence of my father. You're under his wrath as sinners and rebellious to him. But boy, it's a lot easier to make somebody feel good by talking about a little boy than a son of God who says, if you don't, if you don't have me, you don't have anything. Those are ultimatums. Those are game changers. If that story's true, then you've got to change it all or walk off. There's no fence riding with that type of a story. Either you embrace this Jesus as your Lord or you write him off as either the, the ultimate liar or the most pitiful crazy man that ever walked the earth. But with a little boy's life, and you know, you can pretty much just say whatever you want to. And you can write some good notes. What's my point in all this? This stuff matters. It had to happen. Or we have nothing. And if it happened, which I believe it did, then we're headed for eternity. Not because of our own righteousness, but because of Christ in our place. It changes everything. And it's kind of interesting to see how that at the end of describing the most horrific crime, as David put it, instead of jaw-dropped discussion of, of, of how awful that was, all John cares to say is, I saw it. It happened. Here it is. Believe it too. That's what he leaves us. Faith in scriptures is never meant to be a leap in the dark. That's not what this Bible teaches. This Bible in no way, shape or form ever suggests that you should believe something that isn't true or didn't happen. Literally. Historically. Rather, it is the acquiescence of the truth. That's what belief and faith is. That which is not true is never worthy of your trust, your faith or your belief. So I'll read where we began, and this is where John will end. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples besides being killed and rising from the dead. But you're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for John and his record written much later as an old man, but testifying to what he saw. Lord, for so many of us, it's a stretch, especially for the modern American thinker 
to think of these things that seem fantastic is quite the leap of faith. But Lord, we thank you for giving us something to hang that faith on. Not just the wondrous description of something out there somewhere, but on a day at a time, surrounded by a group of witnesses, your sinless Son paid for our sin. And because of one sin sacrifice, we can be eternally forgiven and live in the presence of our Creator, thus reversing what happened in Eden. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking us back to the garden. And thank you for John who gives us what we need to be able to grab this with both hands. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for brains, for minds to think, hearts to feel. And Lord, here lately we thank you for others to experience this with. To look into one another's eyes. To encourage one another in this truth we know. Lord, thank you for the Lord's day and for our time together. We ask this in your name. Amen.